like the real deal now. Ooh. Gonna kick this sorry ass out on the street. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me. Um, and we are in part two of the Undertaker uh, Streak podcast, uh, where it takes on Jade State Roberts at WrestleMania 8 in 1992. Um, so, Scott, at this time, where were you as a wrestling fan? Were you into wrestling at this time, after, or beforehand? Oh, yeah. No, this was, uh, this was pretty much the peak. Um, I was, uh, well, it's a long peak, but I was... Um, I'd say uh, maybe seventh grade, so about twelve years old at this time, and uh, I was heavily into everything that uh, the WWF put out. It was pre uh, Monday Night Raw, so you could still follow along quite a bit with um, you know superstars and Wrestling Challenge, and uh, you know renting the videos when the you know when the pay per views came out every so often. So I was I was in pretty deep, had all the action figures, and got the magazine and. I knew just about everything there was to know at that point. Okay, well, um, this is very close to me because this is the first ever uh, WWE event I ever saw. Um, at that time, I was 11 years old um, in a summer camp. And in the UK, and I still do it now, which I find quite weird, is that they have the event, we don't get to see the video DVD of it until four months after. So it was around August of 92 when I saw this. And it's it's a very good event to me. There's some bits that I found weird only because it's the first time I saw this, especially with the main event because everyone was a big fan of Hulk Hogan. But the first match I saw was in the face of Sid Justice when he gets the crap beat out of him no. most of the match. Right. And then he was the match just out of nowhere, which was really weird to me. Um, so, yeah, pretty much. Um, with Don't take at this point, I had... Um, from WrestleMania 7 to WrestleMania 8, his first major feud was the Ultimate Warrior. He thought it would be a great idea to put him in a coffin at the funeral parlor. Um, and Warrior um, goes to Jake State Roberts for help in defeating The Undertaker. And have you ever seen this bit? Because I tried to find it, I couldn't really find it. Uh, I don't know if I recall the match specifically, uh, but the the setup was pretty memorable. With the um, you know when they locked the the warrior in the casket on the funeral parlor, like you mentioned. Yeah. And uh, I know there was a there's a bit where uh, Jake the Snake trapped Warrior in a like a, a room full of snakes uh, type of thing. I guess this was his his main fear. Um, it was uh, you know I don't recall. I, I know they never had a, a pay per view showdown. Um, so I don't know that it actually paid off in, in a match that most fans got to experience, and that probably had something to do with Warrior disappearing kind of after SummerSlam 91. Um, that kind of put Undertaker kind of floating a little bit there. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, uh, with the bit with the snakes, that's the first test. The, the third test, sorry. The first two was when he put him in the coffin again, and then got a buried Warrior alive. 
And then when it was in the room with the snake, is where the snake bit Warrior. And right. And found out that Roberts and Taylor had actually formed an alliance. Yeah, that was that was the way that the, <laughs> they kind of turned Roberts there towards the end of his run. Um, so they, 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 honestly, they, they, they get involved with the, what was that big feud with, uh, the Master Man, Randy Savage, who right. retired at the time, uh, but then he appealed to Jack Tunney, who was the president, to get his, his retirement revoked, and it all comes to a head in February of this, of 92, where, um, what was really angry, I think he had a mass, he just lost, and he's going, like, I'm going to, he gets a chair, goes around, I'm going to hit whoever comes first. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, at the end of a Saturday night's main event episode, one of the hour-long specials they had on Fox. And I think earlier in the night they had set up the the Hogan-Sid WrestleMania showdown where Sid had walked out on Hulk during a tag team match. And this the Savage-Roberts match ended the show. And right before they cut to black, you know, the, Savage had beat Roberts and uh, he called Miss Elizabeth down to the ring and then they so they could celebrate. And then right before they faded to black, they showed Jake backstage with a chair. And then uh, what happened was revealed later on on Superstars, where that um, right as Savage was gonna or right as Roberts was gonna swing at whichever person came through the curtain first, the Undertaker's arm reached out and grabbed the chair and and stopped him. Yes. Um, so that happened. Uh, Roberts then goes to the funeral parlor to demand, you know, why did you do that? Yes. Um, he doesn't take it very well because <laughs> <laughs> he DDT's poor bearer. Um, he traps Undertaker hand in the coffin first. DDT's poor bearer and then hits Undertaker with a chair. Well, uh, I think he did it more than twice because um, with the match, the first bit you see is the interview with Sean Mooney that Jay Distake does. Right. He showed that bit again. I see him hit it twice. I mean, and what was his. Very interesting, giving like a running commentary and kind of boasting about it. And, and he's so confident that he's going to beat The Undertaker because of what he did earlier. Yes. Um, and one thing I like about that, at, at the end of the interview, he gives this, he always says, trust me, and gives a little smile and there's this really creepy sneer right into the camera. Yeah, he, his, his, um, he just looks like a snake. <laughs> I think that I don't know. Uh, I don't know exactly how that all worked out. The the trunks that he wore made his legs look extra long. Uh, his big feet and the the boots kind of accentuate that. And uh, he really just kind of uh, embodied the idea of what a snake, an anthropomorphized snake, would look like. Um, and it was you know the the weird thing was that his uh, he he put on special tights for the the WrestleMania match. He had been wearing the kind of the ones that looked like flames with the black base and then the kind of the red and the orange. Uh, but for this, he they were white with just kind of airbrushed images on the side of his legs. And it was it was weird to see him go with the white, uh, given that his character had, had so clearly gone to the uh, the demonic side. Yes, I mean, well, one thing I, I didn't realize at the time, but apparently this match came very close to not happening. I don't even knew about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of story about um, Jake Roberts being promised a spot with the writing team and uh, that falling through. Uh, Wikipedia says that it was because Vince McMahon uh, decided to leave Pat Patterson's spot on the team open uh, rather than give it to Roberts, although he had been promised the spot. And uh, Jake wanted to leave the company. He wanted out of his contract, and so he threatened to no-show the WrestleMania match unless he got his release. So this was actually his last... Uh, match with the WWF for his original run. Um, 
he w- he yeah. wouldn't be back for four more years. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm not seeing. I know he's back in '96. Yeah, that, uh, leads on to Austin three sixteen, but Austin beats him at the Kingdom Win tournament. Yep. Yeah, I was there for that. Oh, were you? Yep. Where was that? In? I was in Milwaukee. Uh, okay. At the uh, the Mecca Arena in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, we unfortunately, I know W does tour the UK, but um, they, they used to go to Liverpool at the time, but I didn't live in Liverpool at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they do it in Manchester, but because I don't drive, unfortunately, as so I just finally you know trying to get the trains back, it's just a bit of a nightmare. So yeah, hopefully when they go back to Liverpool, I'll definitely go and see the WWE. I'm, I'm more of an armchair fan. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, but, um, going in the match, um, I mentioned this when I spoke to sorry Paul with the WrestleMania Seven podcast. Is I can see I can see myself comparing a lot of what he does did then to what he does now. Yeah. Uh, one thing I noticed, especially with the entrances, is that because this is at the Fuji Dome in Indianapolis. Yes. Um, about sixty, I think it was like 70,000 over there. Yeah, and it's it's early in the night, um, much like WrestleMania three, um, and a little bit like WrestleMania six, where the this you can tell that the sun is up when they start the show, and this is in the early half of the show, uh, so it's still very bright in the arena, um, and you can see that they they could have fit a lot more fans on the floor. There's a lot of exposed concrete. Uh, they just didn't have a a kind of a jam packed seating configuration. Um, yeah. Um, because it's so used to now, the pay-per-views now being on the, like, 8, 9, not 8 o'clock at Eastern Time. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm yeah. So, it's it really weird the way you just choose to be on, like, during the afternoon. But yeah. I thought that's the way they did it then. Yeah, when you watch the when you watch the whole show, it's a, a nice gradual progression from day to night. Uh, yeah. And that's kind of cool that it gives the, the later matches a different, more of, like, a main event feel. Uh, that's definitely, this, during WrestleMania three. that's especially prominent. Um and a little, a little bit here. Yes, definitely. I mean, um, we're going back to this with the entrance. As soon as the, as soon as the um, bell dongs, he's out straight away. He's so used to it going dark, going dark. And especially the recent WrestleManias have like a big stage that covers like one, one like side of yeah. the stadium, and you don't get that now. It's pretty used as one like one, I presume to be like the home entrance. Man, but just use that. So that's why the entrance way leads to the corner, up to like the middle. How you see it now? Yeah, there's there's absolutely nothing special about this entrance, other than it's just a longer walk than what he's used to. Um, there's this, there's no special stage, or there's no there's no Titantron or graphics or anything like that. Um, he, but he's yeah, he's just slow and deliberate. Yeah. And also with this, I know with WrestleMania's three and six, um, they use the. Um, they use like the tr- like a trolley. Thing. Yeah, the little the little golf cart things with the with the replica ring built on them. Yeah, and they didn't uh, do that for this one. I wish they would have. That was a neat a neat conveyance. No, no, I just find it weird, that, especially with Mini Free, that some did some did use it, some didn't. Right. Um, so yeah, um, pretty much um, the the match starts with Robert's kind of taunting on the taker. On the taker, just walking around and. Uh, what was kind of loading towards the corner? He's back. He's back at the turnbuckle himself. As Undertaker goes towards him, he ducks round. The first time he doesn't do it, he just like goes behind him and forces Undertaker towards him again. And then the next two times he does it, when he ducks behind, soon as Undertaker turns round, he gives him a white hand, and then but Undertaker at this time he's kind of 
doing uh, what Sorry Paul calls the Samoa Joe defense, where he's, he's just not selling it. Yeah. He just takes the hit and no sells. And one thing that I noticed with Undertaker as the as the progression evolves, he very because of the way his gimmick was, he always moved very slowly. And you see little glimpses of the fast pace, especially when he does like the one and clothesline or he bounces against the wall, you see bits of it. He's always kind of he's always had this weird like mix. He always goes really slow, but when he has to do like a big move, that's when he speeds up. Yeah, he's very much in this match working the style that he brought to the WWF uh, when he debuted the character um, a couple years earlier. Um, and it, it's he's this is his first real um, match as a fan favorite, so it, he's kind of feeling his way through that style, um, but very slow, very deliberate. And like you said, there's moments of explosion, you know, explosion and and um, quick actions, but most of the rest of the time he's just he's very much stalking uh, his opponent. Um, yeah, the, the style is a lot like you might see in a, in a match against just a, a regular guy on a Superstars or a Challenge. Yeah, I mean, I mean, those two kind of matches were just like a Superstar faces a jobber and mm-hmm. just defeats them really easily, that kind of thing. Exactly. Uh, yeah, um, but at this point, um, Snake, uh, Snake does it again, but he's kind of in between two turnbuckles. Uh, dodges us, hits him, and then clotheslines him over the top rope. But takes a lands on his feet and then proceeds to grab him out of, under the bottom rope to the um, apron and then starts hitting him. But one thing I noticed that Undertaker um, wasn't doing the whole like MMA style. Then um, the way he would like hit someone, it's like it's like a folk fist. You know, he had his, his like open hand where we hit them in like the bit of skin that goes down the thing leads up, leads up to the thumb. Yeah. I thought that was a very unique way of you know, hitting someone because you, you, you're technically not supposed to punch even though the referee always allows it. Yeah, it, it separates him from the other wrestlers of the time. It's kind of like a, a he's almost like he puts his hand in a choking position and he does a lot of upward striking. Yeah. Um, he does a fair amount of he does a fair amount of choking in this match. Also, not oh, yeah, yeah. not choking, but he grabs the neck like he's gonna do a choke slam. And you you watched enough, you expect him to choke slam Roberts, but he never does. Yeah, because I don't think that move was at that point. I know right. he was supposed to do the power bomb, but the um, at the time the tombstone was the only move he had then. So like it's got like four different moves that he could use to finish someone off now. Yeah, exactly. Um. One thing I noticed as well is that uh, Paul Bearer is kind of the rest his offense because as soon as Taker starts hitting him, you see Bearer slapping the wing post and Taker proceeds to about throw Roberts into the wing post. Yeah. And Roberts, in pain, goes back into the wing. And then when Taker comes in, that's when that gives Roberts the opportunity to go back on the attack. Yeah, it's not, it's not a real long match. No, it's only uh. six minutes. It's a, um, it's more of a fight than he gets from Snooker at WrestleMania Seven. Um, yeah, see, I could, I call that a glorified squash match. Yeah, that's fair. That's definitely fair. Um, so yeah, um, when that happens, uh, one thing I like about this match, especially the commentary, and there's one bit I'll get to later on where it just always makes me laugh. But he and is talking about what's in the urn, mm-hmm. and he mentioned that in the WrestleMania Seven one, and both times going. Your broadcast journalist. <laughs> no, you you find out that's your job. Yeah. And I always find a way that he he I think wants to wants to know what's in it, but doesn't really care to find out. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's a it's a, a pretty good example of the relationship that Monsoon and Heenan had with each other in the booth. Yes, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's just so funny. I mean, there's a bit about, just a little bit into this match where he goes to um, Gwyneth, oh, you know, how Paul Bear got the urn. And Gwyneth's <laughs> like, you know, okay, what is it? He goes, oh, he earned it. That's right, the old-fashioned way. Yeah, and Gwyneth's um, yeah. like, for God's sake. He's also, uh, Bobby Heenan also references the, this, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but this, uh, this match would have been, or this card was, obviously on a Sunday, and it would have been between um, the final four of college basketball, the two, the two Saturday, Saturday semifinal games, and then the final would, be, it would have been the next night on Monday. And, uh, yeah, the final four. Yeah, Indiana University had lost on, in the final four the night before, uh, which is why Bobby Heenan declares himself Indiana's favorite Bobby as a reference to Bobby Knight, the, the Hoosiers coach at the time. And uh, oh, he wow. he denigrates them as a high school team, but it's a it's kind of a you scratch your head a little bit when you watch the tape, you know, twenty two years later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember that because he, he, he uh, sorry, when it goes to him, oh, you're not good enough to to hold Bobby Knight's towel. Yeah, and he was like, Who? yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, this is a you know this is the second show on <laughs> on the card, which is I don't know that the Undertaker has ever wrestled that close to the to the front of a WrestleMania as he did on on this night. Um, I'm not the time to check. Yeah, um, the match he had last, the year before that was a 14 match card, and he was on April 6th. He was a match before the uh, Warrior Savage match. Yeah, it was it was at least halfway through. Yeah, uh, with this one, it's second match on the card. I presume it's the same amount of time, but there's only there's supposed to be nine matches, but I know they go into the Bulldog Berserker match. Yeah. So there's been eight, eight matches on the card. And a couple of them are like no more than like two, three minutes, especially the Owen Hart Skinner match. Yeah. Yeah, that and was. I mean, it, 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 it was only 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very. Weird. I said before, I mean, there's bits of it alone about WrestleMania, but basically just feeling weird and really short. Yeah, this, uh, this WrestleMania is. Actually, it would be great uh, if it if it stopped after the Savage Flair match. Um, the yeah. the Shawn Michaels Tito Santana opener is pretty good. The uh, Bret Hart Roddy Piper Intercontinental Title match that follows this is fantastic, oh, and uh, and the the Savage Flair match is just uh, magnificent. And then it really falls off the table <laughs> um, after that. But it's probably one of the best starts. I mean, I don't I don't think that any of the other seven. WrestleManias before this had that kind of hot start. Um, it's just a it it really is a shame that I understand why they put the Hogan thing on last and there's no uh, you know and they and they brought the Warrior back and and all that. But uh, it would have been um, would have been great to just end with with the Savage Flair uh, conclusion and the fireworks and the victory celebration. That was that was spectacular. Yeah, and um, I know like dressing massively from the Undertaker match. But uh, one thing I like about the Flair Savage match especially is that during that match, Flair and Perfect cheat so much. Yeah. <laughs> Savage cheats once to win the match, yeah. and they go ballistic. Yep. <laughs> so like, oh, how dare you cheat? And Gorilla mentions that in the next match. He's like going, you know, you both cheated, but he is having none of it. Yeah. It's that kind of thing. I just love that bit, especially when Hina just goes off on one. I'm good as like, you know, you're okay. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, it's it's terrific. I mean, like I said, this was this whole uh, era. I was uh, I never missed anything. I didn't watch the I didn't watch the pay per views live, but um, I certainly got the tape as soon as I could get my hands on it. And uh, um, this is a really great. Um, you know, it's it's before the downturn. Um, you know, Hogan Hogan leaves. Uh, the Warriors return. Fizzles out pretty mightily. Um, and then, you know, we get into the kind of the new generation when Raw debuts the next January and we start the shift towards Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. And it's, um, this is, this event is kind of the culmination of the first WrestleMania era, uh, one yeah. through eight. And, um, because of that, it's, it's interesting that the Undertaker gets in right at the end of that with matches at the last two. And certainly I don't think at the time they were, um, I mean, it would be impossible to say that anybody was predicting that he would still be wrestling in 2014 and that he'd be undefeated and that he'd, be, you know, become known for these legendary matches, um, which is why these earlier fights don't kind of have that, um, that scale, that sense of importance that they do today. Um, and really have had for probably the last five to ten years as the streak became more of a of a story point. Yeah, I mean, um, it doesn't really become part of... The streak doesn't really become the story until Westbury 21 when it faces Alton. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm sure yeah, I kind of mentioned the last, in the last podcast a bit, um, Undertaker doesn't acknowledge himself until Westmania 18 when he beats Flair. Yeah. That's the first time he kind of acknowledges that, okay, I've been undefeated for 10 in the world now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, to, back to the match. I uh, talked about the commentary. Um, there's a bit where Taylor keeps on sending Wobbers into the corner and it does the most blatant chokehold ever right in front of the referee. And uh, he puts Wobbers in the floor and still choking him. And Hina starts counting. And Gwyneth's going, at least, what Hina's doing is demonstrating that the referee should be like doing the five count. Yeah. And um, when um, Gwyneth goes, oh, why don't you go down the referee? And yeah. he just goes, I'm needed here. <laughs> I'm needed here. Yeah. Yeah. And I am sure most of that was improvised, too. It's it's okay. great interplay. I don't, think you, I don't think they would have had, like, Vince, like, streaming down their ears. Oh, exactly. It's a very natural chemistry. And you get, you got, the, like, years later with uh, Ross and Lawler. And I thought you got that spell when, Paul Heyman was there in 2001. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, it's just, it seemed to be really good and it kind of varied a bit, kind of went off a bit when it has own invasion angle and Heyman's, Heyman, he had cars as well on SmackDown, being like the voice of the, you know, the Alliance. Also, but I always enjoyed Paul Heyman and commentary and I kind of, I love as a manager now, but I love him to go back into it because commentary and the minutes tell. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, pretty much, um, Wobbers get an opportunity to win the match here because uh, Tiki has the end bow, then it's flying clothesline. And they try to scoop slam, but Wobbers managed to get out of it. And then just out of nowhere, it's a DDT. Right. I used to think, well, the match is over. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't, he can't, he, he thinks the match is over, so he's just taking his time. He's being, not like bolstered to the crowd, but he's like, no, it kind of is, but kind of on a small scale. Like, I've won, the, you know, this match is over. Uh, I've won it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that he. Yeah, I don't think he'd ever not won a match after hitting the DDT at this point. Yeah, because um, at that time DDT was the finishing maneuver, so pretty much once you've done that, it's game over. Exactly. Um, but Taker gets up, and one thing I notice is that Roberts, as soon as he notices it, he doesn't notice it straight away. 
he looks away slightly and notices that's taken us up, but you don't see any fear or anything like that. He just goes back on the attack again, and I find that very interesting. Yeah, he you know he does a really good job in this match um, in terms of it, just the way that he tells the story in the ring. Like you mentioned earlier, his his complete confidence that he's got the Undertaker figured out. He he doesn't show any fear, um, even though he it, it turns out he's completely overmatched uh, ultimately. Um, but you don't you don't get any of that sense from him, which is good because that's you know Roberts was never a cowardly heel, um, and he really wasn't a, a a bad guy for very long in the WWF. So it's it's good that he, um, you know, it wouldn't have made any sense for his character to evolve from the confident fan favorite that he was. I mean, take you know, taking on Andre the Giant or you know, um, it wouldn't have made a lot of sense for him to evolve into cowardice. Now he did have uh, his his snake was barred from ringside. Uh, Jack Tunney did that after Roberts switched to the Cobra from the Boa Constrictor and it, you know attacked Randy Savage, and so he didn't have the snake with him as a uh, as kind of an insurance policy. But you're right; he really didn't uh, he didn't show any fear, and I think that was important in terms of um, you know. And the thing is that the Undertaker didn't show any shock either. You know, he he also had complete confidence, and he was just methodical, and, you know, he was going to just do what he needed to do. He was still very much, you know, mystical and, you know, with the power of the urn and all that. So it was a, it was kind of a good match between the two personalities. Yeah, so um, at this point, Robert goes up again, but take a guess of a chokehold. Robert gets out of it, and hits another DDT uh, after a short clothesline. And I love Robert's short clothesline, the way uh, he does it. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. It's a great move. And you would have think that Roberts would have learned his lesson because it only <laughs> happened two minutes ago. But either he was still cocky or he had some kind of like sudden amnesia or something. Because instead of pinning the match and you know, pinning the takeout and winning, he's had to go off to Paul Bearer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so he goes outside, he punches him and tries to drop the urn. At this time, Taker sits up again, which scares the crap out of the referee. Yeah. Because the referee just turns around like, oh crap, he's there. Um, <laughs> It comes, goes out of the wing, uh, grabs Robert and does a tombstone onto the outside of healing, like streaming. No, don't do it. And yeah, yeah, Bobby kind of. Go ahead. Right, I know it looks bad, tombstone, but doing that move on the eight, like on, I know Davens will know in there's going to do that probably on now. I see probably some doing some of that now on the outside because it's, it's more, more safety conscious. Right. Uh, so instead of seeing the head go in between the legs, he doesn't do that. It's like the, the, Robert's head is in front of Taker. Yeah. And as it goes down, it says nowhere near the, the floor. No. The, the effect is there to say, look, it's on the tombstone. And I think the camera didn't focus on the head so much. It kind of just focused a little bit higher. You probably wouldn't have seen that. Yeah. And only people would have seen it would have been the trial of the well. But anyway, it kind of... Yeah, it was interesting. I had two thoughts. One is, is along the line of what you're saying is the... Uh, the commentary kind of sells it as if it were a traditional tombstone on a on a harder surface floor. I mean, you could tell the pad has some give to it, and he does. Ca- I mean, he just catches him completely with his with his thighs. The other thing is that it was interesting to me that they did a kind of an out of the ring finish with in such a large arena. You know, I don't know what the what the monitor situation was like up on the rafters, but you could tell during the introductions they panned from one of the the upper 
reaches of the stadium, and it, you, you can't see anything from up there. I mean, this is a, a football stadium, and they're way high up. Um, yeah. So I, I would imagine that a good portion of the stadium had no idea what was going on outside the ring, other than that the you know Undertaker's outfit was entirely black, and, and Roberts was clad in white from the waist down. Maybe that helped a little bit. Um, but this, it, the visual of what you're seeing just really doesn't line up with the story that they're trying to tell both through the commentary booth and, um, you know, what they intended to communicate from the, the actual, um, ring action. I mean, we're not real far away from, uh, the debut of ECW and legitimate extreme craziness. And even this pales in comparison to some of the stuff like when Ric Flair, uh, put Terry Funk through a table or when Funk put Flair through a table, that was, you know, four or five years ahead of this, I think. Um, this is very tame by those standards. And, you know, the thing is, um, Hart and Flair and uh, those two were bleeding later on in the night. Uh, Bret Hart and Ric Flair were. Yeah, because I know with that, I know uh, complaining was not was not allowed at the time. I know Flair got fined for it. Yeah, I believe that. Parts, parts looked accidental and it didn't get fined. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. But, you know, it's d- definitely there was not... Anything. I mean, in the in the Savage match, um, Flair really works his leg over, and Savage sells the leg injury all throughout the night. He's hopping around on one foot, and yeah. this. Um, I mean, this is an effective way to send Roberts off of television. Uh, he wasn't. I think he had a ninety day clause in his contract, so he wasn't seen on WCW TV for another three months. Um, yeah. And it, it serves the purpose of, of giving him a sound defeat and. Uh, I don't know if you mentioned, but he's just Undertaker rolls him back in the ring and gets kind of a at that point what's kind of an anticlimactic pin. Um, yeah, it is. But you know, it's it's really uh, it's it's there's not a lot of degree of difficulty in in the storytelling and the way that it wraps up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not much he wraps up in the ring, does the, the usual like the way you know he pins someone, mm-hmm. and then that was it, and. Um, at that time, Taker seemed to want to go after Wobbs again, even though he fucking killed him. Yeah. Uh, but Bearer stops him by putting the arm in the front of Taker, and then they go off to the back. Yep. <laughs> that's pretty much it, is it? It's the match. In terms of wrestling ability, it's not great, but I think it tells tells a really good story. Yeah. And with me, with Jake Roberts, I've never. It's until recently, until recently when I've kind of started to analyze matches more. And kind of think how to do that, and what what I find interesting is that I like just the role that Roberts does play. He, he starts just so arrogant. He said, "Boy, you think he, he he goes well? I can't figure this guy out." And in the end, it comes back to hold him. Yeah, I mean, it's you don't need to have you know you don't need to be out there for half an hour to tell a great match. Um, oh no! And you know later some of the uh, the specifically the. Uh, the Undertaker Triple H Hell in a Cell match from a couple of years ago, where the cage gets its own entrance, Jim Ross gets an entrance, both wrestlers and the referee get an entrance, and you know you've, you're spending about 20 minutes just watching the setup. Um, yeah. So there's something to be said for the you know the expeditious nature of this particular encounter, uh, but it really is like I said at the at the time you're not getting any hint of of what's to come with the Undertaker. Long term, I mean, he's already had that the brief championship encounter with Hogan, where they traded the belts back and forth in the preceding November. Um, he's just getting into the idea of 
being the top good guy, um, or not being a good guy, I guess. Uh, but the, the landscape is changing so dramatically. With Hogan out the door, title goes back to Savage. Then the Warrior comes back. Obviously, Bret Hart's star is on the rise. Um, you know, when uh, getting into later in the summer, when Davey Boy Smith ascends a little bit, um, there's there's a lot of things kind of moving parts going on. And I think The Undertaker, while it wasn't necessarily a bad idea to, to flip the switch on him, I don't know that... Um, you know, I, I don't know, they still had Flair for another year, just about, but I don't know that that was the best choice long-term, given all of the other moving parts that were going on at the time. Yeah, I mean, I was very surprised they gave Donald Taylor the bell on it, it was like four days or whatever, but I was yeah. very surprised they got that really early on, that thought would be, I mean, after that, he doesn't challenge for the championship until WrestleMania 13. Right. And that yeah, he's just got, I mean, the next three or four years are just a series of, um, I mean, five years are really just a series of the various uh, monsters brought in to, to take on The Undertaker. Um, he doesn't become a title contender again until he faces off against Yokozuna in 1994. And that's that's kind of, in the big picture, that's a really brief window, and then he's off again. Yeah, that's the one where... Uh, like everyone comes in to help out Yuzo Zuna, isn't it? Yeah, the casket match, and he kind of ascends after that and disappears. And he, there's two Undertakers the next summer, and <clears throat> that's its yeah. own. But you know, basically, the larger point is that he's just kind of a sideshow. Um, I mean, and some people would argue that he never needed the title to be interesting because of the the things you can do with his character. Um, but I have to wonder if knowing if, if knowing what they knew about the fact that Flair would be gone. Uh, within less than a year, and that Warriors' return would flame out. Um, that Sid wasn't going to—I mean, Sid wasn't around real long either. Um, they might have had some different things in mind for Undertaker than what actually happened. Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, pretty much said before this what was his last match for four years, and then I know he spends like over to WrestleMania nine, feeling uh, by proxy Harvey Whippleman because he's facing all the managers that Harvey Whippleman. Was managing like Kamala, and then the next year, right. he faces Giants Gonzalez, and I remember talking about that match uh, another time. Yep. Um, so, and then after that, he goes uh, with you know, he faces the Million Dollar Corporation because that's that is a WRC who introduces the fake Undertaker, which is, which is a nice throwback to how the Undertaker originally debuted. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that's pretty much it. It's a, um, was a six-minute match. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's well, not looking for a technical masterclass. Don't watch this match. Right. <laughs> probably watch. Probably Piper. You're looking for you're looking for a specific technical match in this event. Probably it's going to be Piper and Brett. Yes. Yeah. Um, brilliant, brilliant story. Um, really, really enjoy that match. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Scott. Um, so uh, take this time just to plug your blog or anything else you like to talk about. Um, yeah, I uh, I write uh, I team write a, a blog called Irresistible Force versus Immovable Object with uh, one of my longtime friends David Kincannon. Uh, we're working on another project right now, um, and I've been uh, I just got done with the Royal Rumble series that I did for Tom Holzerman's wrestling blog, which is at wallsofjericaholic.blogspot.com, where I looked at the thirty Royal Rumble entry positions and the kind of the interesting things that have happened from each position and statistical anomalies and coincidences and 
that was that was fun. Those are all available. Um, and uh, other than that, you can find me on Twitter at Star of Savage, where I try to uh, have insightful commentary. Um, I would suggest that some of my longer form stuff is uh, in the Atomic Elbow fanzine, which is uh, not available digitally. It's it's print only. Uh, uh, my good friend Robert Newsom. Uh, from Georgia produces that and, and sends it out via the postal service. Uh, but I would suggest Googling for Atomic Elbow uh, to, to find out. We've, uh, I think, produced, I want to say, seven or eight issues by now, and the first four are available in a book format uh, that's that's really nice looking. So um, if you haven't had a chance to dig into that, there's some fantastic writing and artwork in that. Um, definitely proud to be a part of that. And uh, I'm also working on a, a new essay for, for the next one of those, too. So highly recommend... Uh, checking out the Atomic Elbow. I didn't realize you did the. Uh, I, I read Tom Holzman's blog. Yes. And he's going to talk about. He's going to do, do the first Triple H match with me. Oh, right, right. Uh, and if he's going to do one more vlog, I can't remember what it is offhand. Um, but, yeah, well, yes, yeah, so I've got to actually read both your blogs. And I know I've listened to Holzman on his podcast. Yes. And listen to you on the Master Better podcast. So, yeah, I mean, both guys do very good stuff. So I recommend you take a look at their work. Definitely. Um, as for me, um, you can follow me on Twitter at Lowdown Wrestling, on one word. Um, and with my blog, at the minute, I'm just going to be some more pay per view reviews. Because uh, I've not really had time to read away about anything else. Right. Um, but hopefully, once I've got this, I'm going to try to get all the podcasts on the full WrestleMania, hopefully. And then hopefully, I'll look to uh, write more, a bit more opinion pieces on all that stuff. Uh, so, yes, well, thank again, thanks again, Scott, for being on the show. Sure, thanks and, for having me. Uh, yes, and we'll catch you all next time. We're talking about WrestleMania now with Jai's going there. And you can tell I'm really looking forward to watching that match. <laughs>